0: Hey everyone, welcome back to Black Clock Audio Tales. This is March 2021. This month we're going to be doing Anne Radcliffe. I don't know if we're going to have any guests to talk about the originator of the what I like to call the Scooby-Doo ending, and gothic literature as we know it, and motherfucking Radcliffe. All right. Uh, Except for that intro, uh, the rest of this should be family-friendly, and I hope you enjoy it. Remember, Black Clock Audio Tales, uh, radio-free Oleander. You can also check out Articulate Warbling from time to
1: time.
2: The Mysteries of Udolpho by Anne Radcliffe. Recording by Diana Solomon, Chicago. Volume 1, Chapter 13, Part A. As when a shepherd of the Hebrid Isles placed far amid the melancholy main whether it be lone fancy him beguiles, or that aerial being sometimes deign to stand embodied to our senses plain. sees on the naked hill or valley low, the in ocean Phoebus dips his wane, a vast assembly moving to and fro, then all at once in air dissolves the wondrous show. Castle of Indolence Madame Chiron's Erebus, at length yielded to her vanity, some very splendid entertainments, which Madame Clerval had given, and the general adulation which was paid her, made the former more anxious than before to secure an alliance that would so much exalt her in her own opinion and in that of the world. She proposed terms for the immediate marriage of her niece, and offered to give Emily a dower, provided Madame Clerval observed equal terms on the part of her nephew. Madame Clerval listened to the proposal, and considering that Emily was the apparent heiress of her aunt's wealth, accepted it. Meanwhile, Emily knew nothing of the transaction till Madame Charonne informed her that she must make preparation for the nuptials, which would be celebrated without further delay. Then, astonished and wholly unable to account for this sudden conclusion, which Valancourt had not solicited, for he was ignorant of what had passed between the elder ladies, and had not dared to hope such good fortune she decisively objected to it. Madame Charonne, however, quite as jealous of contradiction now as she had been formerly, contended for a speedy marriage with as much vehemence as she had formerly opposed whatever had the most remote possibility of leading to it. And Emily's scruples disappeared when she again saw Valancourt, who was now informed of the happiness designed for him, and came to claim a promise of it from herself, while preparations were making for these nuptials, Montoni became the acknowledged lover of Madame Charonne, and, though Madame Clairval was much displeased when she heard of the approaching connection, and was willing to prevent that of Valancourt with Emily, her conscience told her that she had no right thus to trifle with their peace, and Madame Clairval, though a woman of fashion, "'was far less advanced than her friend in the art of deriving satisfaction "'from distinction and admiration rather than from conscience. "'Emily observed with concern the ascendancy which Montoni had acquired over Madame Charonne, "'as well as the increasing frequency of his visits, "'and her own opinion of this Italian was confirmed by that of Valancourt, "'who had always expressed a dislike of him. "'As she was one morning sitting at work in the pavilion, enjoying the pleasant freshness of spring, whose colors were now spread upon the landscape, and listening to Valancourt, who was reading, but who often laid aside the book to converse. She received a summons to attend Madame Charonne immediately, and had scarcely entered the dressing-room when she observed with surprise the dejection of her aunt's countenance and the contrasted gaiety of her dress. "'So, niece,' said Madame, and she stopped under some degree of embarrassment. "'I sent for you. I... I wish to see you. I have news to tell you. "'From this hour you must consider the Signor Montoni as your uncle. "'We were married this morning.' "'Astonished, not so much at the marriage as at the secrecy with which it had been concluded, "'and the agitation with which it was announced, "'Emily at length attributed the privacy to the wish of Montoni rather than of her aunt. "'His wife, however, intended that the contrary should be believed.' "'and therefore added, "'You see, I wish to avoid a bustle. "'But now the ceremony is over, "'I shall do so no longer. "'And I wish to announce to my servants "'that they must receive the Signor Montoni "'for their master.' "'Emily made a feeble attempt to congratulate her "'on these apparently imprudent nuptials. "'I shall now celebrate my marriage "'with some splendour, continued Madame Montoni, "'and to save time I shall avail myself "'of the preparation that has been made for yours, "'which will, of course, be delayed a little while.' "'Such of your wedding clothes are ready, I shall expect you will appear in, to do honour to this festival. "'I also wish you to inform Monsieur Valancourt, that I have changed my name, and he will acquaint Madame Clairval. "'In a few days I shall give a grand entertainment, at which I shall request their presence.' "'Emily was so lost in surprise and various thought, that she made Madame Montoni scarcely any reply, "'but, at her desire, she returned to inform Valancourt of what had passed.' surprise was not his predominant emotion on hearing of these hasty nuptials. And when he learned that they were to be the means of delaying his own, and that the very ornaments of the chateau which had been prepared to grace the nuptial day of his Emily were to be degraded to the celebration of Madame Montoni's, grief and indignation agitated him alternately. He could conceal neither from the observation of Emily, whose efforts to abstract him from these serious emotions and to laugh at the apprehensive considerations that assailed him, were ineffectual. And when at length he took leave, there was an earnest tenderness in his manner that extremely affected her. She even shed tears when he disappeared at the end of the terrace, yet knew not exactly why she should do so. Montoni now took possession of the chateau, and the command of its inhabitants with the ease of a man who had long considered it to be his own. His friend Cavigny, who had been extremely serviceable in having paid Madame Chiron the attention and flattery which she required but from which Montoni too often revolted, had apartments assigned to him and received from the domestics an equal degree of obedience with the master of the mansion. Within a few days Madame Montoni, as she had promised, gave a magnificent entertainment to a very numerous company, among whom was Valancourt. But of which Madame Clairval excused herself from attending. There was a concert, ball, and supper. Valancourt was, of course, Emily's partner, and though when he gave a look to the decorations of the apartments he could not but remember that they were designed for other festivities than those that they now contributed to celebrate, he endeavored to check his concern by considering that a little while only would elapse before they would be given to their original destination, During this evening, Madame Montoni danced, laughed, and talked incessantly, while Montoni, silent, reserved, and somewhat haughty, seemed weary of the parade and of the frivolous company it had drawn together. This was the first and the last entertainment given in celebration of their nuptials. Montoni, though the severity of his temper and the gloominess of his pride prevented him from enjoying such festivities, was extremely willing to promote them. It was seldom that he could meet in any company a man of more address, and still seldomer of more understanding than himself. The balance of advantage in such parties, or in the connections which might arise from them, must therefore be on his side. And knowing as he did the selfish purposes for which they are generally frequented, he had no objection to measure his talents of dissimulation with those of any other competitor for distinction and plunder. But his wife, when her own interest was immediately concerned, had sometimes more discernment than vanity, acquired a consciousness of her inferiority to other women in personal attractions, which, uniting with the jealousy natural to the discovery, counteracted his readiness for mingling with all the parties Toulouse could afford. Till she had, as she supposed, the affections of a husband to lose, she had no motive for discovering the unwelcome truth, and it had never obtruded itself upon her. "'but now that it influenced her policy, "'she opposed her husband's inclination for company "'with the more eagerness because she believed him "'to be really as well-received "'in the female society of the place "'as during his addresses to her he had affected to be. "'A few weeks only had elapsed since the marriage "'when Madame Montoni informed Emily "'that the Signor intended to return to Italy "'as soon as the necessary preparation "'could be made for so long a journey. "'We shall go to Venice,' said she, "'where the signor has a fine mansion, and from thence to his estate in Tuscany. "'Why do you look so grave, child? "'You who are so fond of a romantic country and fine views "'will doubtless be delighted with this journey.' "'Am I then to be of the party, madam?' said Emily, with extreme surprise and emotion. "'Most certainly,' replied her aunt. "'How could you imagine we should leave you behind? "'But I see you are thinking of the chevalier.' He is not yet, I believe, informed of the journey, but he very soon will be so. Signor Montoni is gone to acquaint Madame Clairval of our journey, and to say that the proposed connection between the families must from this time be thought of no more. The unfeeling manner in which Madame Montoni thus informed her niece that she must be separated, perhaps forever, from the man with whom she was on the point of being united for life, added to the dismay which she must otherwise have suffered at such intelligence. When she could speak, she asked the cause of the sudden change in Madame's sentiments towards Valancourt, but the only reply she could obtain was that the Signor had forbade the connection, considering it to be greatly inferior to what Emily might reasonably expect. "'I now leave the affair entirely to the Signor," added Madame Antoni. But I must say that Monsieur Valancourt never was a favorite with me, and I was over-persuaded, or I should not have given my consent to the connection. I was weak enough. I am so foolish sometimes to suffer other people's uneasiness to affect me, and so my better judgment yielded to your affliction. But the Seigneur has very properly pointed out the folly of this, and he shall not have to reprove me a second time. "'I am determined that you shall submit to those "'who know how to guide you better than yourself. "'I am determined that you shall be conformable.' "'Emily would have been astonished at the assertions "'of this eloquent speech had not her mind been so overwhelmed "'by the sudden shock it had received "'that she scarcely heard a word "'of what was laterally addressed to her. "'Whatever were the weaknesses of Madame Montoni, "'she might have avoided to accuse herself "'with those of compassion and tenderness "'to the feelings of others, "'and especially to those of Emily. "'It was the same ambition "'that lately prevailed upon her "'to solicit an alliance with Madame Clairval's family, "'which induced her to withdraw from it "'now that her marriage with Montoni "'had exalted her self-consequence, "'and with it, her views for her niece. "'Emily was at this time too much affected "'to employ either remonstrance or entreaty on this topic.' And when at length she attempted the latter, her emotion overcame her speech, and she retired to her apartment to think if in the present state of her mind to think was possible upon this sudden and overwhelming subject. It was very long before her spirits were sufficiently composed to permit the reflection, which when it came was dark and even terrible. She saw that Montoni sought to aggrandize himself in his disposal of her, and it occurred that his friend Cavigny was the person for whom he was interested. The prospect of going to Italy was still rendered darker when she considered the tumultuous situation of that country, then torn by civil commotion, where every petty state was at war with its neighbor, and even every castle liable to the attack of an invader. She considered the person to whose immediate guidance she would be committed, and the vast distance that was to separate her from Valancourt, and at the recollection of him every other image vanished from her mind, and every thought was again obscured by grief. In this perturbed state she passed some hours, and when she was summoned to dinner, she entreated permission to remain in her own apartment. But Madame Montoni was alone, and the request was refused. Emily and her aunt said little during the repast. The one occupied by her griefs, the other engrossed by the disappointment which the unexpected absence of Montoni occasioned. For not only was her vanity piqued by the neglect, but her jealousy alarmed by what she considered as a mysterious engagement. When the cloth was drawn and they were alone, Emily renewed the mention of Valancourt. But her aunt, neither softened to pity or awakened to remorse became enraged that her will should be opposed, and the authority of Montoni questioned, though this was done by Emily with her usual gentleness, who, after a long and torturing conversation, retired in tears. As she crossed the hall, a person entered it by the great door, whom, as her eyes hastily glanced that way, she imagined to be Montoni, and she was passing on with quicker steps when she heard the well-known voice of Valancourt. "'Emily!' "'Oh, my Emily!' cried he in a tone faltering with impatience, "'while she turned, and, as he advanced, "'was alarmed at the expression of his countenance "'and the eager desperation in his air. "'In tears, Emily, I would speak with you,' said he. "'I have much to say. Conduct me to where we may converse. "'But you tremble. You are ill. Let me lead you to a seat.' "'He observed the open door of an apartment "'and hastily took her hand to lead her thither.' But she attempted to withdraw it and said with a languid smile, "I am better already. If you wish to see my aunt, she is in the dining parlor." I must speak with you, my Emily," replied Valancourt. "Good God! Has it already come to this? Are you indeed so willing to resign me?" But this is an improper place. I am overheard. Let me entreat your attention, if only for a few minutes. When you have seen my aunt," said Emily. "'I was wretched enough when I came hither,' exclaimed Valancourt. "'Do not increase my misery by this coldness, this cruel refusal!' The despondency with which he spoke this affected her almost to tears, but she persisted in refusing to hear him till he had conversed with Madame Montoni. "'Where's her husband?' "'Where, then, is Montoni?' said Valancourt in an altered tone. "'Is it he to whom I must speak?' Emily, terrified for the consequence of the indignation that flashed in his eyes, "'tremblingly assured him that Montoni was not at home "'and entreated he would endeavor to moderate his resentment. "'At the tremulous accents of her voice, "'his eyes softened instantly from wildness into tenderness. "'You are ill, Emily,' said he. "'They will destroy us both. "'Forgive me that I dared to doubt your affection.' "'Emily no longer opposed him as he led her into an adjoining parlor.' The manner in which he had named Montoni had so much alarmed her for his own safety that she was now only anxious to prevent the consequences of his resentment. He listened to her entreaties with attention, but replied to them only with looks of despondency and tenderness, concealing as much as possible the sentiments he felt towards Montoni, that he might soothe the apprehensions which distressed her. But she saw the veil he had spread over his just resentment, and his assumed tranquillity only alarming her more, she urged at length the impolicy of forcing an interview with Montoni, and of taking any measure which might render their separation irremediable. Valancourt yielded to these remonstrances, and her affecting entreaties drew from him a promise that however Montoni might persist in his design of disuniting them, he would not seek to redress his wrongs by violence. "'For my sake,' said Emily, "'Let the consideration of what I should suffer "'deter you from such a mode of revenge.' "'For your sake, Emily,' replied Valancourt, "'his eyes filling with tears of tenderness and grief "'while he gazed upon her. "'Yes. "'Yes, I shall subdue myself. "'But though I have given you my solemn promise to do this, "'do not expect that I can tamely submit "'to the authority of Montoni. "'If I could, I should be unworthy of you.' "'Yet, oh, Emily!' How long may he condemn me to live without you? How long may it be before you return to France? Emily endeavored to soothe him with assurances of her unalterable affection, and by representing that in little more than a year she should be her own mistress, as far as related to her aunt, from whose guardianship her age would then release her, assurances which gave little consolation to Valancourt who considered that she would then be in Italy and in the power of those whose dominion over her would not cease with their rights. But he affected to be consoled by them. Emily, comforted by the promise she had obtained and by his apparent composure, was about to leave him when her aunt entered the room. She threw a glance of sharp reproof upon her niece, who immediately withdrew, and of haughty displeasure upon Valancourt. "'This is not the conduct I should have expected from you, sir,' "'said she. "'I did not expect to see you in my house "'after you had been informed "'that your visits were no longer agreeable, "'much less that you would seek "'a clandestine interview with my niece, "'and that she would grant one.' Valancourt, perceiving it necessary "'to vindicate Emily from such a design, "'explained that the purpose of his own visit "'had been to request an interview with Montoni.' and he then entreated upon the subject of it with the tempered spirit which the sex rather than the respectability of Madame Montoni demanded. His expostulations were answered with severe rebuke. She lamented again that her prudence had ever yielded to what she termed compassion, and added that she was so sensible of the folly of her former consent that to prevent the possibility of a repetition she had committed the affair entirely to the conduct of Signor Montoni. The feeling eloquence of Valancourt, however, at length made her sensible in some measure of her unworthy conduct, and she became susceptible to shame, but not remorse. She hated Valancourt, who awakened her to this painful sensation, and in proportion as she grew dissatisfied with herself, her abhorrence of him increased. This was also the more inveterate, because his tempered words and manner were such as, without accusing her, compelled her to accuse herself and neither left her a hope that the odious portrait was the caricature of his prejudice, or afforded her an excuse for expressing the violent resentment with which she contemplated it. At length her anger rose to such a height that Valancourt was compelled to leave the house abruptly lest he should forfeit his own esteem by an intemperate reply. He was then convinced that from Madame Montoni he had nothing to hope for what of either pity or justice could be expected from a person who could feel the pain of guilt without the humility of repentance. To Montoni he looked with equal despondency, since it was nearly evident that this plan of separation originated with him, and it was not probable that he would relinquish his own views to entreaties or remonstrances, which he must have foreseen and have been prepared to resist. Yet remembering his promise to Emily, and more solicitous concerning his love than jealous of his consequence, Valancourt was careful to do nothing that might unnecessarily irritate Montoni. He wrote to him, therefore, not to demand an interview, but to solicit one, and having done this he endeavored to wait with calmness his reply. Madame Clairval was passive in the affair. When she gave her approbation to Valancourt's marriage, it was in the belief that Emily would be the heiress of Madame Montoni's fortune, and though upon the nuptials of the latter, when she perceived the fallacy of this expectation, her conscience had withheld her from adopting any measure to prevent the union, her benevolence was not sufficiently active to impel her towards any step that might now promote it. She was, on the contrary, secretly pleased that Valancourt was released from an engagement which she considered to be as inferior in point of fortune to his merit as his alliance was thought by Montoni to be humiliating to the beauty of Emily. And though her pride was wounded by this rejection of a member of her family, she disdained to show resentment otherwise than by silence. Montoni, in his reply to Valancourt, said that, as an interview could neither remove the objections of the one or overcome the wishes of the other, it would serve only to produce useless altercation between them. He therefore thought proper to refuse it. In consideration of the policy suggested by Emily, and of his promise to her, Valancourt restrained the impulse that urged him to the house of Montoni to demand what had been denied to his entreaties. He only repeated his solicitations to see him, seconding them with all the arguments his situation could suggest. Thus several days passed in remonstrance on one side, and inflexible denial on the other. For whether it was fear or shame, or the hatred which results from both, that made Montoni shun the man he had injured, he was peremptory in his refusal, and was neither softened to pity by the agony which Valancourt's letters portrayed, or awakened to a repentance of his own injustice by the strong remonstrances he employed. At length Valancourt's letters were returned unopened and then, in the first moments of passionate despair, he forgot every promise to Emily, except the solemn one which bound him to avoid violence, and hastened to Montoni's chateau, determined to see him by whatever other means might be necessary. Montoni was denied, and Valancourt, when he afterwards inquired for Madame and Mademoiselle Saint-Aubert, was absolutely refused admittance by the servants. Not choosing to submit himself to a contest with these, He at length departed, and, returning home in a state of mind approaching to frenzy, wrote to Emily of what had passed, expressed without restraint all the agony of his heart, and entreated that since he must not otherwise hope to see her immediately, she would allow him an interview unknown to Montoni. Soon after he had dispatched this, his passions becoming more temperate, he was sensible of the error he had committed in having given Emily a new subject of distress in the strong mention of his own suffering— and would have given half the world, had it been his, to recover the letter. Emily, however, was spared the pain she must have received from it by the suspicious policy of Madame Montoni, who had ordered that all letters addressed to her niece should be delivered to herself, and who, after having perused this and indulged the expressions of resentment which Valancourt's mention of Montoni provoked, had consigned it to the flames. End of Volume 1, Chapter 13, Part A
3: The Mysteries of Adolfo by Anne Radcliffe Volume 1, Chapter 13, Part 2 Montoni, meanwhile, every day more impatient to leave France, gave repeated orders for dispatch to the servants employed in preparations for the journey, and to the persons with whom he was transacting some particular business. He preserved a steady silence to the letters in which Valancourt, despairing of greater good, and having subdued the passion, that had transgressed against his policy, solicited only the indulgence of being allowed to bid Emily farewell. But when the latter, Valencourt, learned that she was really to set out in a very few days, and that it was designed he should see her no more, forgetting every consideration of prudence, he dared, in a second letter to Emily, to propose a clandestine marriage. This also was transmitted to Madame Montoni, and the last day of Emily's stay at Thulos arrived, without affording Valancourt even a line to soothe his sufferings, or a hope that he should be allowed a parting interview. During this period of torturing suspense to Valancourt, Emily was sunk into that kind of stupor, with which sudden and irremediable misfortune sometimes overwhelms the mind. Loving him with the tenderest affection, and having long been accustomed to consider him as the friend and companion of all her future days, she had no ideas of happiness that were not connected with him. What, then, must have been her suffering, when thus suddenly they were to be separated, perhaps for ever, certainly to be thrown into distant parts of the world, where they could scarcely hear of each other's existence, and all this in obedience to the will of a stranger, for such as Montoni, and of a person who had but lately been anxious to hasten their nuptials. It was in vain that she endeavored to subdue her grief and resign herself to an event which she could not avoid. The silence of Valencourt afflicted more than it surprised her, since she attributed it to its just occasion. But when the day preceding that on which she was to quit Thulos arrived, and she had heard no mention of his being permitted to take leave of her, Grief overcame every consideration that had made her reluctant to speak of him, and she inquired of Madame Montoni whether this consolation had been refused. Her aunt informed her that it had, adding that, after the provocation she had herself received from Valancourt, in their last interview, and the persecution which the Seigneur had suffered from his letters, no entreaties should avail to procure it. "'If the Chevalier expected this favor from us,' said she, he should have conducted himself in a very different manner. He should have waited patiently till he knew whether we were disposed to grant it, and not have come and reproved me, because I did not think proper to bestow my niece upon him, and then have persisted in troubling the Seor, because he did not think proper to enter into any dispute about so childish an affair. His behavior throughout has been extremely presumptuous and impertinent, and I desire that I may never hear his name repeated, and that you will get the better of these foolish sorrows and whims, and look like other people, and not appear with that dismal countenance as if you were ready to cry. For, though you say nothing, you cannot conceal your grief from my penetration. I can see you are ready to cry at this moment, though I am reproving you for it. I, even now, in spite of my commands." Emily, having turned away to hide her tears, quitted the room to indulge them, and the day was passed in an intensity of anguish such as she had, perhaps, never known before. When she withdrew to her chamber for the night, she remained in the chair where she had placed herself on entering the room, absorbed in her grief, till long after every member of the family except herself was retired to rest. She could not divest herself of a belief that she had parted with Valincourt to meet no more a belief which did not arise merely from foreseen circumstances, for, though the length of the journey she was about to commence, the uncertainty as to the period of her return, together with the prohibitions she had received, seemed to justify it, she yielded also to an impression, which she mistook for a presentiment, that she was going from Valencourt for ever. How dreadful to her imagination, too, was the distance that would separate them! the Alps, those tremendous barriers, would rise, and whole countries extend between the regions where each must exist. To live in adjoining provinces, to live even in the same country, though without seeing him, was comparative happiness to the conviction of this dreadful length of distance. Her mind was, at length, so much agitated by this consideration of her state, and the belief that she had seen Valancourt for the last time, that she suddenly became very faint, and, looking round the chamber for something that might revive her, she observed the casements, and had just strength to throw one open, near which she seated herself. The air recalled her spirits, and the still moonlight that fell on the elms of the long avenue, fronting the window, somewhat soothed them, and determined her to try whether exercise and the open air would not relieve the intense pain that bound her temples. In the chateau all was still, and, passing down the great staircase into the hall, from whence a passage led immediately to the garden, she softly and unheard, as she thought, unlocked the door and entered the avenue. Emily passed on with steps now hurried and now faltering, as, deceived by the shadows among the trees, she fancied she saw some person move in the distant perspective, and feared if it was a spy of Madame Montoni. Her desire, however, to revisit the pavilion, where she had passed so many happy hours with Valancourt, and had admired with him the extensive prospect over Languedoc and her native Gascony, overcame her apprehension of being observed, and she moved on towards the terrace, which, running along the upper garden, commanded the whole of the lower one, and communicated with it by a flight of marble steps that terminated the avenue. Having reached these steps, she paused a moment to look round, for her distance from the chateau now increased the fear which the stillness and obscurity of the hour had awakened, but, perceiving nothing that could justify it, she ascended to the terrace, where the moonlight shewed a long broad walk, with the pavilion at its extremity, while the rays silvered the foliage of the high trees and shrubs that bordered it on the right, and the tufted summits of those that rose to a level with the balustrade on the left from the garden below. Her distance from the chateau again alarming her, she paused to listen. The night was so calm that no sound could have escaped her, but she heard only the plaintive sweetness of the nightingale, with the light shiver of the leaves, and she pursued her way towards the pavilion, having reached which Its obscurity did not prevent the emotion that a fuller view of its well-known scene would have excited. The lattices were thrown back, and showed beyond their embowered arch the moonlight landscape, shadowy and soft, its groves and plains extending gradually and indistinctly to the eye, its distant mountains catching a stronger gleam, and the nearer river reflecting the moon and trembling to her rays. Emily, as she approached the lattice, was sensible of the features of the scene only as they served to bring Valancourt more immediately to her fancy. "'Ah!' said she, with a heavy sigh, as she threw herself into a chair by the window. "'How often have we sat together in this spot, often have looked upon that landscape! Never, never more shall we view it together! Never, never more, perhaps, shall we look upon each other!' Her tears were suddenly stopped by terror. A voice spoke near her in the pavilion. She shrieked. It spoke again, and she distinguished the well-known tones of Valancourt. It was indeed Valancourt who supported her in his arms. For some moments their emotion would not suffer either to speak. "'Emily,' said Valancourt at length, as he pressed her hand in his. "'Emily!' and he was again silent but the accent, in which he had pronounced her name, expressed all his tenderness and sorrow. Oh, my Emily!' he resumed, after a long pause. "'I do then see you once again, and hear again the sound of that voice. "'I have haunted this place, these gardens, for many, many nights, "'with a faint, very faint hope of seeing you. "'This was the only chance that remained to me, and thank heaven it has at length succeeded. I am not condemned to absolute despair." Emily said something she scarcely knew what, expressive of her unalterable affection, and endeavored to calm the agitation of his mind. But Balancourt could for some time only utter incoherent expressions of his emotions, and, when he was somewhat more composed, he said, "'I come hither soon after sunset, and have been watching in the gardens and in this pavilion ever since. For though I had now given up all hope of seeing you, I could not resolve to tear myself from a place so near to you, and should probably have lingered about the chateau till morning dawned. Oh, how heavily the moments have passed, yet with what various emotion have they been marked, as I sometimes thought I heard footsteps, and fancied you were approaching, and then again perceived only a dead and dreary silence. But when you opened the door of the pavilion, and the darkness prevented my distinguishing with certainty whether it was my love, my heart beat so strongly with hopes and fears that I could not speak. The instant I heard the plaintive accents of your voice, my doubts vanished, but not my fears, till you spoke of me. Then, losing the apprehension of alarming you in the excess of my emotion, I could no longer be silent. Oh, Emily! These are moments in which joy and grief struggle so powerfully for preeminence that the heart can scarcely support the contest. Emily's heart acknowledged the truth of this assertion, but the joy she felt on thus meeting Valancourt, at the very moment that she was lamenting that they must probably meet no more, soon melted into grief as the reflection stole over her thoughts, and imagination prompted visions of the future. She struggled to recover the calm dignity of mind which was necessary to support her through this last interview, and which Balancourt found it utterly impossible to attain, for the transports of his joy changed abruptly into those of suffering, and he expressed in the most impassioned language his horror of this separation, and his despair of their ever meeting again. Emily wept silently as she listened to him, and then, trying to command her own distress and to soothe his, She suggested every circumstance that could lead to hope. But the energy of his fears led him instantly to detect the friendly fallacies which she endeavored to impose on herself and him, and also to conjure up illusions too powerful for his reason. You are going from me, said he, to a distant country. Oh, how distant! To new society, new friends, new admirers, with people, too, who will try to make you forget me, and to promote new connections. How can I know this, and not know that you will never return to me, never can be mine? His voice was stifled by sighs. You believe, then, said Emily, that the pangs I suffer proceed from a trivial and temporary interest. You believe... Suffer, interrupted Valancourt. Suffer for me. Oh, Emily, how sweet! How bitter are those words! What comfort, what anguish do they give? I ought not to doubt the steadiness of your affection, yet such is the inconsistency of real love that it is always awake to suspicion, however unreasonable, always requiring new assurances from the object of its interest, and thus it is that I always feel revived, as by a new conviction, when your words tell me I am dear to you, and wanting these I relapse into doubt, and too often into despondency. Then, seeming to recollect himself, he exclaimed, But what a wretch am I, thus to torture you, and in these moments, too! I who ought to support and comfort you! This reflection overcame Valancourt with tenderness, but, relapsing into despondency, he again felt only for himself, and lamented again this cruel separation, in a voice and words so impassioned, that Emily could no longer struggle to repress her own grief or to soothe his. Valancourt, between these emotions of love and pity, lost the power, and almost the wish, of repressing his agitation. And, in the intervals of convulsive sobs, he, at one moment, kissed away her tears, then told her cruelly that possibly she might never again weep for him, and then tried to speak more calmly, but only exclaimed, "Oh, Emily, my heart will break! I cannot, cannot leave you! Now, I gaze upon that countenance, Now I hold you in my arms, a little while, and all this will appear a dream. I shall look, and cannot see you, shall try to recollect your features, and the impression will be fled from my imagination, to hear the tones of your voice, and even memory will be silent. I cannot, cannot leave you. Why should we confide the happiness of our whole lives to the will of people, who have no right to interrupt, and, except in giving you to me, have no power to promote it? Oh, Emily, venture to trust your own heart, venture to be mine forever! His voice trembled, and he was silent. Emily continued to weep, and was silent also, when Balancourt proceeded to propose an immediate marriage, and that at an early hour the following morning she should quit Madame Montoni's house and be conducted by him to the church of the Augustines, where a friar should await to unite them. The silence with which she listened to a proposal was dictated by love and despair, and enforced at a moment when it seemed scarcely possible for her to oppose it, when her heart was softened by the sorrows of a separation that might be eternal, and her reason obscured by the illusions of love and terror, encouraged him to hope that it would not be rejected. "'Speak, my Emily,' said Valancourt eagerly. "'Let me hear your voice. Let me hear you confirm my fate.' She spoke not. Her cheek was cold and her senses seemed to fail her, but she did not faint. To Valancourt's terrified imagination she appeared to be dying. He called upon her name, rose to go to the chateau for assistance, and then, recollecting her situation, feared to go or to leave her for a moment. After a few minutes she drew a deep sigh and began to revive. The conflict she had suffered between love and the duty she at present owed to her father's sister her repugnance to a clandestine marriage, her fear of emerging on the world with embarrassments such as might ultimately involve the object of her affection in misery and repentance, all this various interest was too powerful for a mind already enervated by sorrow, and her reason had suffered a transient suspension. But duty and good sense, however hard the conflict, at length triumphed over affection and mournful presentiment. Above all, she dreaded to involve Valancourt in obscurity and vain regret, which she saw, or thought she saw, must be the too certain consequence of a marriage in their present circumstances, and she acted, perhaps, with somewhat more than female fortitude, when she resolved to endure a present rather than provoke a distant misfortune. With a candor that proved how truly she esteemed and loved him, and which endeared her to him, if possible, more than ever, She told Valancourt all her reasons for rejecting his proposals. Those which influenced her concerning his future welfare he instantly refuted, or rather contradicted, but they awakened tender considerations for her, which the frenzy of passion and despair had concealed before, and love, which had but lately prompted him to propose a clandestine and immediate marriage, now induced him to renounce it. The triumph was almost too much for his heart, For Emily's sake, he endeavored to stifle his grief, but the swelling anguish would not be restrained. Oh, Emily, said he, I must leave you, I must leave you, and I know it is forever. Convulsive sobs again interrupted his words, and they wept together in silence, till Emily, recollecting the danger of being discovered, and the impropriety of prolonging the interview, which might subject her to censure, summoned all her fortitude to utter a last farewell. "'Stay!' said Balancourt. "'I conjure you stay, for I have much to tell you. The agitation of my mind has hitherto suffered me to speak only on the subject that occupied it. I have forborne to mention a doubt of much importance, partly lest it should appear as if I told it with an ungenerous view of alarming you into a compliance with my late proposal.' Emily, much agitated, did not leave Valencourt, but she led him from the pavilion, and, as they walked upon the terrace, he proceeded as follows. "'This Montoni, I have heard some strange hints concerning him. Are you certain he is of Madame Connell's family, and that his fortune is what it appears to be?' "'I have no reason to doubt either,' replied Emily, in a voice of alarm. "'Of the first, indeed, I cannot doubt.' but I have no certain means of judging of the latter, and I entreat you will tell me all that you have heard." That I certainly will, but it is very imperfect and unsatisfactory information. I gathered it by accident from an Italian, who was speaking to another person of this Montoni. They were talking of his marriage. The Italian said that if he was the person he meant, he was not likely to make Madame Charonne happy. He proceeded to speak of him in general terms of dislike and then gave some particular hints concerning his character that excited my curiosity and i ventured to ask him a few questions he was reserved in his replies but after hesitating for some time he owned that he had understood abroad that montoni was a man of desperate fortune and character he said something of a castle of montoni's situated among the apennines and of some strange circumstances that might be mentioned as to his former mode of life. I pressed him to inform me further, but I believed the strong interest I felt was visible in my manner and alarmed him, for no entreaties could prevail with him to give any explanation of the circumstances he had alluded to, or to mention anything further concerning Montoni. I observed to him that, if Montoni was possessed of a castle in the Apennines, It appeared from such a circumstance that he was of some family, and also seemed to contradict the report that he was a man of entirely broken fortunes. He shook his head and looked as if he could have said a great deal, but made no reply. A hope of learning something more satisfactory or more positive detained me in his company a considerable time, and I renewed the subject repeatedly. But the Italian wrapped himself up in reserve, said that what he had mentioned he had caught only from a floating report, and that reports frequently arose from personal malice, and were very little to be depended upon. I forbore to press the subject farther, since it was obvious that he was alarmed for the consequence of what he had already said, and I was compelled to remain in uncertainty on a point where suspense is almost intolerable think, Emily, what I must suffer to see you depart for a foreign country, committed to the power of a man of such doubtful character as is this Montoni. But I will not alarm you unnecessarily. It is possible, as the Italian said at first, that this is not the Montoni he alluded to. Yet, Emily, consider well before you resolve to commit yourself to him. Oh, I must not trust myself to speak. Or I shall renounce all the motives which so lately influenced me to resign the hope of your becoming mine immediately. Valancourt walked upon the terrace with hurried steps, while Emily remained leaning on the balustrade in deep thought. The information she had just received excited, perhaps, more alarm than it could justify, and raised once more the conflict of contrasted interests. She had never liked Montoni. The fire and keenness of his eye, its proud exaltation, its bold fierceness, its sullen watchfulness, as occasion, and even slight occasion, had called forth the latent soul, she had often observed with emotion, while from the usual expression of his countenance she had always shrunk. From such observations she was the more inclined to believe that it was this Montoni, of whom the Italian had uttered his suspicious hints. The thought of being solely in his power in a foreign land was terrifying to her, but it was not by terror alone that she was urged to an immediate marriage with Valancourt. The tenderest love had already pleaded his cause, but had been unable to overcome her opinion as to her duty, her disinterested considerations for Valancourt, and the delicacy which made her revolt from a clandestine union. It was not to be expected that a vague terror would be more powerful than the united influence of love and grief, but it recalled all their energy and rendered a second conquest necessary. With Valancourt, whose imagination was now awake to the suggestion of every passion, whose apprehensions for Emily had acquired strength by the mere mention of them and became every instant more powerful as his mind brooded over them, with Valancourt no second conquest was attainable. He thought he saw in the clearest light, and love assisted the fear, that this journey to Italy would involve Emily in misery. He determined, therefore, to persevere in opposing it, and in conjuring her to bestow upon him the title of her lawful protector. ''Emily,'' said he, with solemn earnestness, ''this is no time for scrupulous distinctions, for weighing the dubious and comparatively trifling circumstances that may affect our future comfort. I now see, much more clearly than before, the train of serious dangers you are going to encounter with a man of Montoni's character. Those dark hints of the Italian spoke much, but not more than the idea I have of Montoni's disposition, as exhibited even on his countenance. I think I see at this moment all that could have been hinted written there. He is the Italian whom I fear, and I conjure you for your own sake as well as for mine, to prevent the evils I shudder to foresee. O Emily, let my tenderness, my arms withhold you from them! Give me the right to defend you!" Emily only sighed, while Valancourt proceeded to remonstrate and to entreat with all the energy that love and apprehension could inspire. But, as his imagination magnified to her the possible evils she was going to meet, the mists of her own fancy began to dissipate, and allowed her to distinguish the exaggerated images which imposed on his reason. She considered that there was no proof of Montoni being the person whom the stranger had meant, that, even if he was so, the Italian had noticed his character and broken fortunes merely from report, and that, though the countenance of Montoni seemed to give probability to a part of the rumor, It was not by such circumstances that an implicit belief of it could be justified. These considerations would probably not have arisen so distinctly in her mind at this time, had not the terrors of Valancourt presented to her such obvious exaggerations of her danger as incited her to distrust the fallacies of passion. But while she endeavored in the gentlest manner to convince him of his error, she plunged him into a new one. His voice and countenance changed to an expression of dark despair. "'Emily,' said he, "'this, this moment is the bitterest that has yet come to me. You do not, cannot love me. It would be impossible for you to reason thus coolly, thus deliberately, if you did. I, I am torn with anguish at the prospect of our separation, and of the evils that may await you in consequence of it. I would encounter any hazards to prevent it, to save you, no, Emily, no, you cannot love me. We have now little time to waste an exclamation or assertion, said Emily, endeavoring to conceal her emotion. If you are yet to learn how dear you are, and ever must be, to my heart, no assurances of mine can give you conviction. The last words faltered on her lips, and her tears flowed fast. These words and tears brought, once more, and with instantaneous force, conviction of her love to Valancourt. He could only exclaim, "'Emily! Emily!' and weep over the hand he pressed to his lips. But she, after some moments, again roused herself from the indulgence of sorrow and said, "'I must leave you. It is late, and my absence from the chateau may be discovered. Think of me, love me, when I am far away. The belief of this will be my comfort.' "'Think of you, love you!' exclaimed Valancourt. "'Try to moderate those transports,' said Emily.' For my sake, try. For your sake. Yes, for my sake, replied Emily, in a tremulous voice. I cannot leave you thus. Then do not leave me, said Valancourt with quickness. Why should we part, or part for longer than till tomorrow? I am, indeed I am, unequal to these moments, replied Emily. You tear my heart, but I never can consent to this hasty, imprudent proposal. If we could command our time, my Emily, it should not be thus hasty. We must submit to circumstances. We must indeed. I have already told you all my heart. My spirits are gone. You allowed the force of my objections, till your tenderness called up vague terrors, which have given us both unnecessary anguish. Spare me. Do not oblige me to repeat the reasons I have already urged. Spare you, cried Valancourt. I am a wretch, a very wretch, that have felt only for myself. I, who ought to have shown the fortitude of a man, who ought to have supported you, I have increased your sufferings by the conduct of a child. Forgive me, Emily, think of the distraction of my mind now that I am about to part with all that is dear to me, and forgive me. When you are gone, I shall recollect with bitter remorse that I have made you suffer and shall wish in vain that I could see you, if only for a moment, that I might soothe your grief. Tears again interrupted his voice, and Emily wept with him. I will show myself more worthy of your love, said Balancourt at length. I will not prolong these moments. My Emily, my own Emily, never forget me. God knows when we shall meet again. I resign you to his care. O oh God, O oh God, protect and bless her. He pressed her hand to his heart. Emily sunk almost lifeless on his bosom, and neither wept nor spoke. Valancourt, now commanding his own distress, tried to comfort and reassure her, but she appeared totally unaffected by what he said, and a sigh which she uttered now and then was all that proved she had not fainted. He supported her slowly towards the chateau, weeping and speaking to her. But she answered only in sighs, till, having reached the gate that terminated the avenue, she seemed to have recovered her consciousness, and, looking round, perceived how near they were to the chateau. "'We must part here,' said she, stopping. "'Why prolong these moments? Teach me the fortitude I have forgot.' Balancourt struggled to assume a composed air. "'Farewell, my love,' said he, in a voice of solemn tenderness. "'Trust me, we shall meet again.' "'Meet for each other, meet to part no more.' His voice faltered, but recovering it, he proceeded in a firmer tone. "'You know not what I shall suffer till I hear from you. "'I shall omit no opportunity of conveying to you my letters, "'yet I tremble to think how few may occur. "'And trust me, love, for your dear sake, "'I will try to bear this absence with fortitude. "'Oh, how little I have shown to-night!' "'Farewell,' said Emily faintly when you are gone i shall think of many things i would have said to you and i of many many said valencourt i never left you yet that i did not immediately remember some question or some entreaty or some circumstance concerning my love that i earnestly wished to mention and feel wretched because i could not oh emily this countenance on which i now gaze will in a moment be gone from my eyes, and not all the efforts of fancy will be able to recall it with exactness. Oh, what an infinite difference between this moment and the next! Now I am in your presence, can behold you. Then all will be dreary blank, and I shall be a wanderer, exiled from my only home. Valancourt again pressed her to his heart and held her there in silence, weeping. Tears once again calmed her oppressed mind. They again bade each other farewell, lingered a moment, and then parted. Valancourt seemed to force himself from the spot. He passed hastily up the avenue, and Emily, as she moved slowly towards the chateau, heard his distant steps. She listened to the sounds as they sung fainter and fainter, till the melancholy stillness of night alone remained, and then hurried to her chamber to seek repose, which, alas, was fled from her wretchedness. End of Volume 1, Chapter
0: 13 This reading by Deborah Lynn in Northern Lower Michigan February 2007 The Mysteries of Udolpho by Anne Radcliffe Volume 2, Chapter 1 Where'er I roam Whatever realms I see, my heart, untravelled, still shall turn to thee, Goldsmith. The carriages were at the gates at an early hour. The bustle of the domestics passing to and fro in the galleries awakened Emily from harassing slumbers. Her unquiet mind had, during the night, presented her with terrific images and obscure circumstances concerning her affection and her future life, she now endeavored to chase away the impressions they had left on her fancy. But from imaginary evils she awoke to the consciousness of real ones. Recollecting that she had parted with Valancourt, perhaps forever, her heart sickened as memory revived. But she tried to dismiss the dismal forebodings that crowded on her mind, and to restrain the sorrow which she could not subdue. Efforts which diffused over the settled melancholy of her countenance an expression of tempered resignation as a thin veil thrown over the features of beauty renders them more interesting by a partial concealment. But Madame Montoni observed nothing in this countenance except its usual paleness which attracted her censure. She told her niece that she had been indulging in fanciful sorrows, and begged she would have more regard for decorum than to let the world see that she could not renounce an improper attachment, at which Emily's pale cheek became flushed with crimson. But it was the blush of pride, and she made no answer. Soon after, Montoni entered the breakfast room, spoke little, and seemed impatient to be gone. The windows of this room opened upon the garden. As Emily passed them, she saw the spot where she had parted with Valancourt on the preceding night. The remembrance pressed heavily on her heart, and she turned hastily away from the object that had awakened it. The baggage being at length adjusted, the travelers entered their carriages, and Emily would have left the chateau without one sigh of regret had it not been situated in the neighborhood of Valancourt's residence. From a little eminence she looked back upon Toulouse and the far-seen plains of Gascony, beyond which the broken summits of the Pyrenees appeared on the distant horizon, lighted up by a morning sun. "'Dear pleasant mountains,' said she to herself, "'how long may it be ere I see ye again, and how much may happen to make me miserable in the interval?' Oh, could I now be certain that I should ever return to Ye, and find that Valancourt still lived for me, I should go in peace. He will still gaze on Ye, gaze when I am far away. The trees that impended over the high banks of the road, and formed a line of perspective with the distant country, now threatened to exclude the view of them. But the bluish mountains still appeared beyond the dark foliage and Emily continued to lean from the coach window till at length the closing branches shut them from her sight. Another object soon caught her attention. She had scarcely looked at a person who walked along the bank with his hat, in which was a military feather drawn over his eyes, Before, at the sound of wheels, he suddenly turned and she perceived that it was Valancourt himself who waved his hand, sprung into the road, and through the window of the carriage put a letter into her hand. He endeavored to smile through the despair that overspread his countenance as she passed on. The remembrance of that smile seemed impressed on Emily's mind forever. She leaned from the window and saw him on a knoll of the broken bank leaning against the high trees that waved over him, and pursuing the carriage with his eyes. He waved his hand, and she continued to gaze till distance confused his figure, and at length another turn of the road entirely separated him from her sight. Having stopped to take up Signor Cavigny at a chateau on the road, the travelers, of whom Emily was disrespectfully seated with Madame Montoni's woman in a second carriage, pursued their way over the plains of Languedoc. The presence of this servant restrained Emily from reading Valancourt's letter, for she did not choose to expose the emotions it might occasion to the observation of any person. Yet such was her wish to read this, his last communication, that her trembling hand was every moment on the point of breaking the seal. At length they reached the village, where they stayed only to change horses without alighting, and it was not till they stopped to dine that Emily had an opportunity of reading the letter. Though she had never doubted the sincerity of Valancourt's affection, the fresh assurances she now received of it revived her spirits. She wept over his letter in tenderness, laid it by to be referred to when they should be particularly depressed, and then thought of him with much less anguish than she had done since they parted. Among some other requests which were interesting to her because expressive of his tenderness and because a compliance with them seemed to annihilate for a while the pain of absence, He entreated she would always think of him at sunset. You will then meet me in thought, said he. I shall constantly watch the sunset, and I shall be happy in the belief that your eyes are fixed upon the same object with mine, and that our minds are conversing. You know not, Emily, the comfort I promise myself from these moments, but I trust you will experience it. It is unnecessary to say with what emotion Emily on this evening watched the declining sun over a long extent of plains on which she saw it set without interruption and sink toward the province which Valancourt inhabited. After this hour her mind became far more tranquil and resigned than it had been since the marriage of Montoni and her aunt. During several days the travelers journeyed over the plains of Languedoc and then entering Dauphiny, and winding for some time among the mountains of that romantic province, they quitted their carriages and began to ascend the Alps. And here such scenes of sublimity opened upon them as no colors of language must dare to paint. Emily's mind was even so much engaged with new and wonderful images that they sometimes banished the idea of Valancourt, though they more frequently revived it. These brought to her recollection the prospects among the Pyrenees, which they had admired together and had believed nothing could excel in grandeur. How often did she wish to express to him the new emotions which this astonishing scenery awakened, and that he could partake of them. Sometimes, too, she endeavored to anticipate his remarks and almost imagined him present. She seemed to have arisen into another world and to have left every trifling thought every trifling sentiment in that below. Those only of grandeur and sublimity now dilated her mind and elevated the affections of her heart. With what emotions of sublimity, softened by tenderness, did she meet Valancourt in thought at the customary hour of sunset, when, wandering among the Alps, she watched the glorious orbs sink amid their summits, His last tints die away on their snowy points, and a solemn obscurity steal over the scene. And when the last gleam had faded, she turned her eyes from the west with somewhat of the melancholy regret that is experienced after the departure of a beloved friend, while these lonely feelings were heightened by the spreading gloom and by the low sounds heard only when darkness confines attention, which make the general stillness more impressive leaves shook by the air, the last sigh of the breeze that lingers after sunset, or the murmur of distant streams. During the first days of this journey among the Alps, the scenery exhibited a wonderful mixture of solitude and inhabitation, of cultivation and barrenness. On the edge of tremendous precipices and within the hollow of the cliffs below which the clouds often floated, were seen villages, spires, and convent towers, while green pastures and vineyards spread their hues at the feet of perpendicular rocks of marble or of granite, whose points, tufted with alpine shrubs or exhibiting only massy crags, rose above each other till they terminated in the snow-topped mountain whence the torrent fell that thundered along the valley. The snow was not yet melted on the summit of Mount Cenis, over which the travelers passed, but Emily, as she looked upon its clear lake and extended plain, surrounded by broken cliffs, saw in imagination the verdant beauty it would exhibit when the snows should be gone, and the shepherds, leading up the midsummer flocks from Piedmont, to pasture on its flowery summit, should add Arcadian figures to Arcadian landscapes. As she descended on the Italian side, the precipices became still more tremendous and the prospects still more wild and majestic, over which the shifting lights threw all the pomp of coloring. Emily delighted to observe the snowy tops of the mountains under the passing influence of the day, blushing with morning, glowing with the brightness of noon, or just tinted with the purple evening the haunt of man could now only be discovered by the simple hut of the shepherd and the hunter or by the rough pine bridge thrown across the torrent to assist the latter in his chase of the chamois over crags where but for this vestige of man it would have been believed only the chamois or the wolf dared to venture As Emily gazed upon one of these perilous bridges with the cataract foaming beneath it, some images came to her mind, which she afterward combined in the following. STORIED SONNET The weary traveler who, all night long, has climbed among the Alps' tremendous steeps, skirting the pathless precipice where throng wild forms of danger as he onward creeps, If chance his anxious eye at distant sees the mountain shepherd's solitary home, peeping from forth the moon-illumined trees, what sudden transports to his bosom come. But if between some hideous chasm yawn, where the cleft pine a doubtful bridge displays, in dreadful silence on the brink forlorn, he stands and views in the faint rays Far, far below the torrent's rising surge and listens to the wild impetuous roar. Still eyes the depth, still shudders on the verge, fears to return, nor dares to venture o'er. Desperate at length, the tottering plank he tries, his weak steps slide, he shrieks, he sinks, he dies. Emily, often as she traveled among the clouds, watched in silent awe their billowy surges rolling below. Sometimes, wholly closing upon the scene, they appeared like a world of chaos, and at others, spreading thinly, they opened and admitted partial catches of the landscape. The torrent, whose astounding roar had never failed, tumbling down the rocky chasm, huge cliffs white with snow, or the dark summits of the pine forests that stretched midway down the mountains. But who may describe her rapture when having passed through a sea of vapor she caught a first view of italy when from the ridge of one of those tremendous precipices that hang upon mount Cenis and guard the entrance of that enchanting country she looked down through the lower clouds and as they floated away saw the grassy vales of piedmont at her feet and beyond the plains of lombardy extending to the farthest distance at which appeared on the faint horizon the doubtful towers of Turin. The solitary grandeur of the objects that immediately surrounded her, the mountain region towering above, the deep precipices that fell beneath, the waving blackness of the forests of pine and oak which skirted their feet or hung within their recesses, the headlong torrents that, dashing among their cliffs, sometimes appeared like a cloud of mist, and others like a sheet of ice. These were features which received a higher character of sublimity from the reposing beauty of the Italian landscape below, stretching to the wide horizon, where the same melting blue tint seemed to unite earth and sky. Madame Montoni only shuddered as she looked down precipices near whose edge the chairman trotted lightly and swiftly almost as the chamois bounded, and from which Emily, too, recoiled. But with her fears were mingled such various emotions of delight, such admiration, astonishment, and awe as she had never experienced before. Meanwhile the carriers, having come to a landing-place, stopped to rest, and the travelers being seated on the point of a cliff, Montoni and cavigni renewed a dispute concerning Hannibal's passage over the Alps, Montoni contending that he entered Italy by way of Mount Cenis and Cavigny that he passed over Mount St. Bernard. The subject brought to Emily's imagination the disasters he had suffered in this bold and perilous adventure. She saw his vast armies winding among the defiles, and over the tremendous cliffs of the mountains, which at night were lighted up by his fires, or by the torches which he caused to be carried when he pursued his indefatigable march. In the eye of fancy she perceived the gleam of arms through the duskiness of night, the glitter of spears and helmets, and the banners floating dimly on the twilight while now and then the blast of a distant trumpet echoed along the defile, and the signal was answered by a momentary clash of arms. She looked with horror upon the mountaineers perched on the higher cliffs, assailing the troops below with broken fragments of the mountain, on soldiers and elephants tumbling headlong down the lower precipices, and as she listened to the rebounding rocks that followed their fall, the terrors of fancy yielded to those of reality, and she shuddered to behold herself on the dizzy height whence she had pictured the descent of others. Madame Montoni, meantime, as she looked upon Italy, was contemplating in imagination the splendor of palaces and the grandeur of castles, such as she believed she was going to be mistress of at Venice and in the Apennine and she became an ideal little less than a princess. Being no longer under the alarms which had deterred her from giving entertainments to the beauties of Toulouse, whom Montoni had mentioned with more eclat to his own vanity than credit to their discretion or regard to truth, she determined to give concerts, though she had neither ear nor taste for music. Conversazioni, though she had no talents for conversation, and to outvie, if possible, in the gaieties of her parties and the magnificence of her liveries, all the noblesse of Venice. This blissful reverie was somewhat obscured when she recollected the Signor, her husband, who, though he was not averse to the profit which sometimes results from such parties, had always shown a contempt of the frivolous parade that sometimes attends them till she considered that his pride might be gratified by displaying among his own friends in his native city the wealth which he had neglected in France, and she courted again the splendid illusions that had charmed her before. The travelers, as they descended, gradually exchanged the region of winter for the genial warmth and beauty of spring. The sky began to assume that serene and beautiful tint peculiar to the climate of Italy Patches of young verdure, fragrant shrubs and flowers, looked gaily among the rocks, often fringing their rugged brows or hanging in tufts from their broken sides, and the buds of the oak and mountain ash were expanding into foliage. Descending lower, the orange and the myrtle, every now and then, appeared in some sunny nook, with their yellow blossoms peeping from among the dark green of their leaves, and mingling with the scarlet flowers of the pomegranate, and the paler ones of the arbutus that ran mantling to the crags above while lower still spread the pastures of piedmont where early flocks were cropping the luxuriant herbage of spring the river doria which rising on the summit of mount senes had dashed for many leagues over the precipices that bordered the road now began to assume a less impetuous, though scarcely less romantic, character as it approached the green valleys of Piedmont, into which the travellers descended with the evening sun, and Emily found herself once more amid the tranquil beauty of pastoral scenery among flocks and herds and slopes tufted with woods of lively verdure and with beautiful shrubs such as she had often seen waving luxuriantly over the Alps above. The verdure of the pasturage, now varied with the hues of early flowers, among which were yellow ranunculuses and pansy violets of delicious fragrance she had never seen excelled. Emily almost wished to become a peasant of Piedmont, to inhabit one of the pleasant, embowered cottages which she saw peeping beneath the cliffs, and to pass her careless hours among these romantic landscapes. To the hours, the months she was to pass under the dominion of Montoni she looked with apprehension, while those which were departed she remembered with regret and sorrow. In the present scenes her fancy often gave her the figure of Valancourt, whom she saw on the point of the cliffs, gazing with awe and admiration on the imagery around him, or wandering pensively along the vale below, frequently pausing to look back upon the scenery, and then his countenance glowing with the poet's fire pursuing his way to some overhanging heights. When she again considered the time and the distance that were to separate them, that every step she now took lengthened this distance, her heart sunk and the surrounding landscape charmed her no more. The travelers, passing Noveliza, reached, after the evening had closed, the small and ancient town of Susa, which had formerly guarded this pass of the Alps into Piedmont. The heights which command it had, since the invention of artillery, rendered its fortifications useless. But these romantic heights, seen by moonlight, with the town below, surrounded by its walls and watchtowers, and partially illumined, exhibited an interesting picture to Emily. Here they rested for the night at an inn, which had little accommodation to boast of, but the travelers brought with them the hunger that gives delicious flavor to the coarsest viands, and the weariness that ensures repose. And here Emily first caught a strain of Italian music on Italian ground. As she sat after supper at a little window that opened upon the country, observing an effect of the moonlight on the broken surface of the mountains, and remembering that on such a night as this she once had sat with her father in Valancourt, resting upon a cliff of the Pyrenees, she heard from below the long-drawn notes of a violin. Of such tone and delicacy of expression as harmonized exactly with the tender emotions she was indulging, and both charmed and surprised her. Cavigny, who approached the window, smiled at her surprise. "'This is nothing extraordinary,' said he." You will hear the same perhaps at every inn on our way there's one of our landlord's family who plays i doubt not emily as she listened thought he could be scarcely less than a professor of music whom she heard and the sweet and plaintive strains soon lulled her into a reverie from which she was very unwillingly roused by the raillery of Cavigny and by the voice of Montoni, who gave orders to a servant to have the carriages ready at an early hour on the following morning, and added that he meant to dine at Turin. Madame Montoni was exceedingly rejoiced to be once more on level ground, and after giving a long detail of the various terrors she had suffered, which she forgot that she was describing to the companions of her dangers, she added a hope that she should soon be beyond the view of these horrid mountains, which all the world, said she, should not tempt me to cross again. Complaining of fatigue, she soon retired to rest, and Emily withdrew to her own room, when she understood from Annette, her aunt's woman, that Cavigny was nearly right in his conjecture concerning the musician who had awakened the violin with so much taste, for that he was the son of a peasant inhabiting the neighboring valley. "'He is going to the carnival at Venice,' added Annette, "'for they say he has a fine hand at playing and will get a world of money, and the carnival is just going to begin. But for my part I should like to live among these pleasant woods and hills better than in a town.' "'And they say, mademoiselle, we shall see no woods or hills or fields at Venice,' for that it is built in the very middle of the sea." Emily agreed with the talkative Annette that this young man was making a change for the worse and could not forbear silently lamenting that he should be drawn from the innocence and beauty of these scenes to the corrupt ones of that voluptuous city. When she was alone, unable to sleep, the landscapes of her native home with Valancourt and the circumstances of her departure haunted her fancy. She drew pictures of social happiness amidst the grand simplicity of nature, such as she feared she had bade farewell to forever. And then, the idea of this young Piedmontese, thus ignorantly sporting with his happiness, returned to her thoughts, and glad to escape a while from the pressure of nearer interests, she indulged her fancy in composing the following lines. The Piedmontese, ah, merry Swain, who laughed along the vales, and with your gay pipe made the mountains ring, why leave your cot, your woods, and tiny gales, and friends beloved, for aught that wealth can bring? He goes to wake, or moonlight sees the string, Venetian gold his untaught fancy hails, yet oft of home his simple carols sing, and his steps pause as the last alp scales. Once more, he turns to view his native scene. Far, far below, as roll the clouds away, he spies his cabin mid the pine-tops green, the well-known woods, clear brook, and pastures gay, and thinks of friends and parents left behind, of Sylvan Revel's dance and festive song, and hears the faint reed swelling in the wind, and his sad sighs the distant notes prolong. Thus went the swain till mountain shadows fell and dimmed the landscape to his aching sight. And must he leave the vales he loves so well? Can foreign wealth and shows his heart delight? No, happy vales, your wild rocks still shall hear his pipe light sounding on the morning breeze. Still shall he lead the flocks to streamlet clear and watch at eve beneath the western trees. Away, Venetian gold, your charm is o'er, and now his swift step seeks the lowland bowers, where through the leaves his cottage light once more guides him to happy friends and jocund hours. Ah, merry swain, that laugh along the vales, and with your gay pipe make the mountains ring, your cot, your woods, your timey scented gales, and friends beloved, more joy than wealth can bring. End of Volume Two, Chapter One. This reading by Deborah Lynn in Northern Lower Michigan, February 2007. The Mysteries of Udolpho by Anne Radcliffe, Volume Two, Chapter Two. Titania.
1: If you will patiently dance
0: in our round and see our moonlight revels, go with us. Midsummer Night's Dream Early on the following morning, the travelers set out for Turin. The luxuriant plain that extends from the feet of the Alps to that magnificent city was not then, as now, shaded by an avenue of trees nine miles in length but plantations of olives mulberry and palms festooned with vines mingled with the pastoral scenery through which the rapid Po, after its descent from the mountains wandered to meet the humble Doria at Turin. As they advanced toward this city the Alps seen at some distance began to appear in all their awful sublimity chain rising over chain in long succession their higher points darkened by the hovering clouds, sometimes hid, and at others seen shooting up far above them, while their lower steeps, broken into fantastic forms, were touched with blue and purplish tints, which, as they changed in light and shade, seemed to open new scenes to the eye. To the east stretched the plains of Lombardy, with the towers of Turin rising at a distance, and beyond, the Apennines bounding the horizon. The general magnificence of that city, with its vistas of churches and palaces branching from the grand square, each opening to a landscape of the distant Alps or Apennines, was not only such as Emily had never seen in France, but such as she had never imagined. Montoni, who had been often at Turin, and cared little about views of any kind, did not comply with his wife's request that they might survey some of the palaces. But staying only till the necessary refreshments could be obtained, they set forward for Venice with all possible rapidity. Montoni's manner during this journey was grave and even haughty, and towards Madame Montoni he was more especially reserved. But it was not the reserve of respect so much as of pride and discontent. Of Emily he took little notice. With Cavigny, his conversations were commonly on political or military topics, such as the convulsed state of their country rendered at this time particularly interesting. Emily observed that at the mention of any daring exploit, Montoni's eyes lost their sullenness and seemed instantaneously to gleam with fire, yet they still retained somewhat of a lurking cunning, and she sometimes thought that their fire partook more of the glare of malice than the brightness of valor though the latter would well have harmonized with the high chivalric air of his figure in which Cavigny, with all his gay and gallant manners was his inferior on entering the Milanese the gentlemen exchanged their French hats for the Italian cap of scarlet cloth embroidered and Emily was somewhat surprised to observe that Montoni added to his the military plume while Covigny retained only the feather, which was usually worn with such caps. But she at length concluded that Montoni assumed this ensign of a soldier for convenience, as a means of passing with more safety through a country overrun with parties of the military. Over the beautiful plains of this country, the devastations of war were frequently visible where the lands had not been suffered to lie uncultivated they were often tracked with the steps of the spoiler the vines were torn down from the branches that had supported them the olives trampled upon the ground and even the groves of mulberry trees had been hewn by the enemy to light fires that destroyed the hamlets and villages of their owners emily turned her eyes with a sigh from these painful vestiges of contention to the alps of the grisson that overlooked them to the north, whose awful solitudes seemed to offer to persecuted man a secure asylum. The travelers frequently distinguished groups of soldiers moving at a distance, and they experienced at the little inns on the road the scarcity of provision and other inconveniences which are a part of the consequence of intestine war, but they had never reason to be much alarmed for their immediate safety and they passed on to Milan with little interruption of any kind, where they stayed not to survey the grandeur of the city or even to view its vast cathedral, which was then building. Beyond Milan the country wore the aspect of a ruder devastation, and though everything seemed now quiet, the repose was like that of death, spread over features which retained the impression of the last convulsions. It was not till they had passed the eastern limits of the Milanese that the travelers saw any troops since they had left Milan, when as the evening was drawing to a close they described what appeared to be an army winding onward along the distant plains whose spears and other arms caught the last rays of the sun. As the column advanced through a part of the road contracted between two hillocks, Some of the commanders on horseback were distinguished on a small eminence, pointing and making signals for the march, while several of the officers were riding along the line directing its progress according to the signs communicated by those above, and others, separating from the vanguard, which had emerged from the pass, were riding carelessly along the plains at some distance to the right of the army. As they drew nearer, Montoni, distinguishing the feathers that waved in their caps, and the banners and liveries of the bands that followed them, thought he knew this to be the small army commanded by the famous Captain Utaldo, with whom, as well as with some of the other chiefs, he was personally acquainted. He therefore gave orders that the carriages should draw up by the side of the road to await their arrival and give them the pass. A faint strain of martial music now stole by, and gradually strengthening as the troops approached, Emily distinguished the drums and trumpets with the clash of cymbals and of arms that were struck by a small party in time to the march. Montoni, being now certain that these were the bands of the victorious Utaldo, leaned from the carriage window and hailed their general by waving his cap in the air which compliment the chief returned by raising his spear and then letting it down again suddenly while some of his officers who were riding at a distance from the troops came up to the carriage and saluted montoni as an old acquaintance the captain himself soon after arriving His bands halted while he conversed with Montoni, whom he appeared much rejoiced to see, and from what he said, Emily understood that this was a victorious army returning into their own principality, while the numerous wagons that accompanied them contained the rich spoils of the enemy, their own wounded soldiers, and the prisoners they had taken in battle, who were to be ransomed when the peace, then negotiating between the neighboring states, should be ratified." The chiefs, on the following day, were to separate, and each, taking his share of the spoil, was to return with his own band to his castle. This was, therefore, to be an evening of uncommon and general festivity, in commemoration of the victory they had accomplished together, and of the farewell which the commanders were about to take of each other. Emily as these officers conversed with Montoni, observed with admiration, tinctured with awe, their high martial air, mingled with the haughtiness of the noblesse of those days, and heightened by the gallantry of their dress, by the plumes towering on their caps, the armorial coat, Persian sash, and ancient Spanish cloak. Utaldo telling Montoni that his army were going to encamp for the night near a village at only a few miles distance, invited him to turn back and partake of their festivity, assuring the ladies also that they should be pleasantly accommodated. But Montoni excused himself, adding that it was his design to reach Verona that evening, and after some conversation concerning the state of the country towards that city, they parted. The travelers proceeded without any interruption, but it was some hours after sunset before they arrived at Verona whose beautiful environs were therefore not seen by Emily till the following morning. When leaving that pleasant town at an early hour, they set off for Padua, where they embarked on the Brenta for Venice. Here the scene was entirely changed. No vestiges of war, such as had deformed the plains of the Milanese, appeared. On the contrary, all was peace and elegance. The verdant banks of the Brenta exhibited a continued landscape of beauty, gaiety and splendor Emily gazed with admiration on the villas of the Venetian noblesse with their cool porticoes and colonnades overhung with poplars and cypresses of majestic height and lively verdure on their rich orangeries whose blossoms perfumed the air and on the luxuriant willows that dipped their light leaves in the wave and sheltered from the Sun the gay parties whose music came at intervals on the breeze the carnival did indeed appear to extend from Venice along the whole line of these enchanting shores. The river was gay with boats passing to that city, exhibiting the fantastic diversity of a masquerade in the dresses of the people within them, and towards evening groups of dancers frequently were seen beneath the trees. Cavigny, meanwhile, informed her of the names of the noblemen to whom the several villas they passed belonged adding light sketches of their characters such as served to amuse rather than to inform, exhibiting his own wit instead of the delineation of truth. Emily was sometimes diverted by his conversation, but his gaiety did not entertain Madame Montoni as it had formerly done. She was frequently grave, and Montoni retained his usual reserve. Nothing could exceed Emily's admiration on her first view of Venice, with its islets, palaces, and towers rising out of the sea, whose clear surface reflected the tremulous picture in all its colors. The sun, sinking in the west, tinted the waves from the lofty mountains of Friuli, which skirt the northern shores of the Adriatic with a saffron glow, while on the marble porticoes and colonnades of St. Mark were thrown the rich lights and shade of evening. As they glided on, the grander features of this city appeared more distinctly. Its terraces, crowned with airy yet majestic fabrics, touched as they now were with the splendor of the setting sun, appeared as if they had been called up from the ocean by the wand of an enchanter, rather than reared by mortal hands. The sun, soon after sinking to the lower world, the shadow of the earth stole gradually over the waves, and then up the towering sides of the mountains of Friuli, till it extinguished even the last upward beams that had lingered on their summits, and the melancholy purple of evening drew over them like a thin veil. How deep, how beautiful was the tranquility that wrapped the scene! All nature seemed to repose. The finest emotions of the soul were alone awake. Emily's eyes filled with tears of admiration and sublime devotion as she raised them over the sleeping world to the vast heavens and heard the notes of solemn music that stole over the waters from a distance. She listened in still rapture, and no person of the party broke the charm by an inquiry. The sounds seemed to grow on the air, for so smoothly did the barge glide along that its motion was not perceivable and the fairy city appeared approaching to welcome the strangers. They now distinguished a female voice accompanied by a few instruments, singing a soft and mournful air, and its fine expression, as sometimes it seemed pleading with the impassioned tenderness of love, and then languishing into the cadence of hopeless grief, declared that it flowed from no feigned sensibility. Ah, thought Emily as she sighed and remembered Valancourt, Those strains come from the heart. She looked round with anxious enquiry. The deep twilight that had fallen over the scene admitted only imperfect images to the eye. But at some distance on the sea, she thought she perceived a gondola. A chorus of voices and instruments now swelled on the air. So sweet, so solemn, it seemed like the hymn of angels descending through the silence of night. Now it died away, and fancy almost beheld the holy choir reascending towards heaven. Then again it swelled with the breeze, trembled awhile, and again died into silence. It brought to Emily's recollection some lines of her late father, and she repeated in a low voice Oft I hear, upon the silence of the midnight air, celestial voices swell in holy chorus that bears the soul to heaven." The deep stillness that succeeded was as expressive as the strain that had just ceased. It was uninterrupted for several minutes, till a general sigh seemed to release the company from their enchantment. Emily, however, long indulged the pleasing sadness that had stolen upon her spirits. But the gay and busy scene that appeared as the barge approached St. Mark's Place, at length roused her attention. The rising moon, which threw a shadowy light upon the terraces and illumined the porticos and magnificent arcades that crowned them, discovered the various company, whose light steps, soft guitars, and softer voices echoed through the colonnades. The music they heard before now passed Montoni's barge in one of the gondolas of which several were seen skimming along the moonlight sea full of gay parties catching the cool breeze. Most of these had music, made sweeter by the waves o'er which it floated and by the measured sound of oars as they dashed the sparkling tide. Emily gazed and listened and thought herself in a fairy scene. Even Madame Montoni was pleased. Montoni congratulated himself on his return to Venice which he called the first city in the world, and Cavigni was more gay and animated than ever. The barge passed on to the Grand Canal, where Montoni's mansion was situated. And here other forms of beauty and of grandeur, such as her imagination had never painted, were unfolded to Emily in the palaces of San Savino and Palladio, as she glided along the waves. The air bore no sounds but those of sweetness echoing along each margin of the canal and from gondolas on its surface, while groups of masks were seen dancing on the moonlight terraces and seemed almost to realize the romance of fairyland. The barge stopped before the portico of a large house. From whence a servant of Montoni crossed the terrace and immediately the party disembarked. From the portico they passed the noble hall to a staircase of marble which led to a saloon fitted up in a style of magnificence that surprised Emily. The walls and ceilings were adorned with historical and allegorical paintings in fresco. Silver tripods, depending from chains of the same metal, illumined the apartment, the floor of which was covered with Indian mats painted in a variety of colors and devices. The couches and drapery of the lattices were of pale green silk, embroidered and fringed with green and gold. Balcony lattices opened upon the grand canal, whence rose a confusion of voices and of musical instruments, and the breeze that gave freshness to the apartment. Emily, considering the gloomy temper of Montoni, looked upon the splendid furniture of this house with surprise, "'and remembered the report of his being a man of broken fortune with astonishment. "'Ah!' said she to herself, "'if Valancourt could but see this mansion, what peace would it give him? "'He would then be convinced that the report was groundless. "'Madame Montoni seemed to assume the air of a princess, "'but Montoni was restless and discontented, "'and did not even observe the civility of bidding her welcome to her home.' Soon after his arrival he ordered his gondola, and with Cavigny went out to mingle in the scenes of the evening. Madame then became serious and thoughtful. Emily, who was charmed with everything she saw, endeavored to enliven her, but reflection had not with Madame Montoni subdued caprice and ill-humor, and her answers discovered so much of both that Emily gave up the attempt of diverting her and withdrew to a lattice to amuse herself with the scene without, so new and so enchanting. The first object that attracted her notice was a group of dancers on the terrace below, led by a guitar and some other instruments. The girl who struck the guitar, and another who flourished a tambourine, passed on in a dancing step, and with a light grace and gaiety of heart that would have subdued the goddess of spleen in her worst humor. After these came a group of fantastic figures, some dressed as gondolieri, others as minstrels, while others seemed to defy all description. They sung in parts, their voices accompanied by a few soft instruments. At a little distance from the portico they stopped, and Emily distinguished the verses of Ariosto. They sung of the wars of the Moors against Charlemagne, and then of the woes of Orlando. Afterwards, the measure changed and the melancholy sweetness of Petrarch succeeded. The magic of his grief was assisted by all that Italian music and Italian expression heightened by the enchantments of Venetian moonlight could give. Emily as she listened caught the pensive enthusiasm. Her tears flowed silently while her fancy bore her far away to France and to Valencourt. Each succeeding sonnet, more full of charming sadness than the last, seemed to bind the spell of melancholy. With extreme regret she saw the musicians move on, and her attention followed the strain till the last faint warble died in air. She then remained sunk in that pensive tranquility which soft music leaves on the mind, a state like that produced by the view of a beautiful landscape by moonlight." or by the recollection of scenes marked with the tenderness of friends lost forever and with sorrows which time has mellowed into mild regret. Such scenes are indeed to the mind like those faint traces which the memory bears of music that is past. passed. Other sounds soon awakened her attention. It was the solemn harmony of horns that swelled from a distance, and observing the gondolas arrange themselves along the margin of the terraces, she threw on her veil, and stepping into the balcony discerned, in the distant perspective of the canal, something like a procession, floating on the light surface of the water. As it approached, the horns and other instruments mingled sweetly, and soon after the fabled deities of the city seemed to have arisen from the ocean. For Neptune, with Venice personified as his queen, came on the undulating waves surrounded by tritons and sea-nymphs. The fantastic splendor of this spectacle, together with the grandeur of the surrounding palaces, appeared like the vision of a poet suddenly embodied, and the fanciful images which it awakened in Emily's mind lingered there long after the procession had passed away she indulged herself in imagining what might be the manners and delights of a sea-nymph till she almost wished to throw off the habit of mortality and plunge into the green wave to participate them how delightful said she to live amidst the coral bowers and crystal caverns of the ocean with my sister-nymphs and listen to the sounding waters above and to the soft shells of the tritons and then after sunset to skim on the surface of the waves round wild rocks and along sequestered shores where perhaps some pensive wanderer comes to weep, then would I soothe his sorrows with my sweet music, and offer him from a shell some of the delicious fruit that hangs round Neptune's palace. She was recalled from her reverie to a mere mortal supper and could not forbear smiling at the fancies she had been indulging, and at her conviction of the serious displeasure which Madame Montoni would have expressed could she have been made acquainted with them. After supper her aunt sat late, but Montoni did not return, and she at length retired to rest. If Emily had admired the magnificence of the saloon, She was not less surprised, on observing the half-furnished and forlorn appearance of the apartments she passed in the way to her chamber, whither she went through long suites of noble rooms that seemed, from their desolate aspect, to have been unoccupied for many years. On the walls of some were the faded remains of tapestry. From others, painted in fresco, the damps had almost withdrawn both colors and design. At length she reached her own chamber spacious, desolate, and lofty like the rest, with high lattices that opened toward the Adriatic. It brought gloomy images to her mind, but the view of the Adriatic soon gave her others more airy, among which was that of the sea-nymph whose delights she had before amused herself with picturing. And anxious to escape from serious reflections, she now endeavored to throw her fanciful ideas into a train, and concluded the hour with composing the following lines. THE SEA nymph, Down, down, a thousand fathom deep, Among the sounding seas I go, Play round the foot of every steep Whose cliffs above the ocean grow. There, within their secret caves, I hear the mighty rivers roar and guide their streams through Neptune's waves to bless the green earth's inmost shore, and bid the freshened waters glide for fern-crowned nymphs of lake or brook through winding woods and pastures wide and many a wild romantic nook. For this the nymphs, at fall of eve, oft dance upon the flowery banks And sing my name, and garlands weave, To bear beneath the wave their thanks. In coral bowers I love to lie, And hear the surges roll above, And through the waters view on high The proud ships sail, and gay clouds move. And oft at midnight's stillest hour, When summer sees the vessel lave, I love to prove my charmful power While floating on the moonlight wave, and when deep sleep the crew has bound and the sad lover musing leans o'er the ship's side i breathe around such strains as speak no mortal means o'er the dim waves his searching eye sees but the vessel's lengthened shade above the moon and azure sky entranced he hears and half afraid sometimes a single note i swell that softly sweet at distance dies, then wake the magic of my shell, and choral voices round me rise. The trembling youth, charmed by my strain, calls up the crew, who silent bend o'er the high deck, but list in vain. My song is hushed, my wonders end. Within the mountain's woody bay, where the tall bark at anchor rides, at twilight hour with tritons gay, I dance upon the lapsing tides and with my sister nymphs I sport, till the broad sun looks o'er the floods. Then swift we seek our crystal court, deep in the wave, mid Neptune's woods. In cool arcades and glassy halls we pass the sultry hours of noon, beyond wherever sunbeam falls, weaving sea-flowers in gay festoon. The while we chant our ditties sweet to some soft shell that warbles near, Joined by the murmuring currents fleet that glide along our halls so clear. There the pale pearl and sapphire blue and ruby red and emerald green Dart from the domes a changing hue and sparry columns deck the scene. When the dark storm scowls o'er the deep and long, long peals of thunder sound, On some high cliff my watch I keep, or all the restless seas around. Till on the ridgy wave afar comes the lone vessel, laboring slow, spreading the white foam in the air, with sail and topmast bending low. Then plunge I, mid the ocean's roar, my way by quivering lightnings shown, to guide the bark to peaceful shore, and hush the sailor's fearful groan. And if too late I reach its side, To save it from the whelming surge I call my dolphins o'er the tide To bear the crew where Isles emerge. Their mournful spirits soon I cheer, While round the desert coast I go, With warbled songs they faintly hear, Oft as the stormy gust sinks low. My music leads to lofty groves That wild upon the sea-bank wave, Where sweet fruits bloom, and fresh spring rose, In closing boughs the tempest brave. Then from the air spirits obey my potent voice they love so well, and on the clouds paint visions gay while strains more sweet at distance swell. And thus the lonely hours I cheat, soothing the shipwrecked sailor's heart, till from the waves the storms retreat and o'er the east the daybeams dart. Neptune for this oft binds me fast to rocks below with coral chain, till all the tempests overpassed, and drowning seamen cry in vain. Whoe'er ye are that love my lay, come, when red sunset tints the wave, to the still sands where fairies play, there in cool seas I love to lave. End of Volume 2, Chapter 2